Welcome to the Startup Brewery Podcast, where we discuss all things related to startups, open and growing breweries, from concepts to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 11, What Are You Brewing? I'm Laura Lodge, here with Candace Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Startup Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candace is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time. And my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more information about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of info and resources at startabrewery.com. To begin, we appreciate today's podcast sponsor. White Labs proudly presents our newest innovation in yeast pitching solutions, Pure Pitch Next Generation was developed for brewers like you, ensuring a foolproof fermentation every batch. Super easy to use, just open the caps and pitch, or add in line with the Flex series of products. The optimized cell count allows brewers worldwide to achieve consistent, clean, and speedy fermentations. Visit whitelabs.com for more information and to find the perfect strain for your next beer. This episode continues our series about the key decisions needed for building your business plan. Most recently, episode 10, Design and Build Strategy with Dustin Hauk of Hauk Architecture and Andy Hooper of Barnum Mechanical and Derek Wasak of Plato Brewing and Consulting. This question, what are you brewing, doesn't seem to be discussed at length when we're talking about startups and almost never when discussing expansion unless you're adding a barrel program. That's curious to me as I imagine there are a number of very specific things that would need to be accounted for with equipment, cost of ingredients, space for the brewing system, the brewing schedule, et cetera. In addition, what you're brewing is a significant part of your branding and your overall story. There are a variety of sales and marketing questions that might come to mind in regard to what you choose to brew, but today we will start with ingredients and operational considerations and see where the conversation takes us. So today our guests are Eric Fowler, a director of education with White Labs, uh, Neil Witt, Nico talks with YCH. I'm going to let uh, our guests introduce themselves fully um, before we get started with the questions. So Eric, can you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah. Um, first off, thanks for having me. This is a really exciting topic that's near and dear. Um, I started my beverage career actually in wine sales for a couple of years and, and realized that um, wine is not quite as accessible as beer. So the passion for world-class beverages really fell into beer. Uh, $2 for one of the best beers in the world compared to $200 for some of the best wines. Um, the first brewery I worked at was a small nano brewery. Uh, we were a three barrel system and had a variety of roles. Then went on to Stone Brewing Company for a couple of years and I've been with White Labs ever since. Excellent. Neil, can you tell us about your background? Yeah, uh, I'm Neil Witte and uh, I'm the associate director of exams for Cicerone certification program. I also run a consulting and draft services business in Kansas City, where I'm based. And uh, I've been in the beer business for about 26 years now. Uh, started in the brew pub industry here in Kansas City in 97 and bounced around a little bit before I got on at Boulevard Brewing Company, where I spent the ni- next 19 years. Um, most of that uh, I got in as a brewer, but after about three years, I took over a role as field quality manager, working out in the marketplace with uh, our national sales team and distributors and retailers on all things quality out in the marketplace. 
Um, I left there six years ago to uh, start my own business, and I took on a bigger role with Cicerone at the same time. Um, and I, you know, I continue to do a lot of the same work I've been doing for quite a while, awesome. and I'm happy to be here. Great. I apologize for mispronouncing your name. I usually ask it's all right. All the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. I don't ask. Uh, <laughs> and Nico talks. Yeah, so my name is Nico. I'm the um, Central uh, Region Sales Manager for Yakima Chief Hops. Um, I just started at YCH in October of last year. Um, I was a brewer for 13 years or so before that, um, starting in Texas, in Austin, Texas, uh, primarily at Live Oak Brewing Company, um, and then uh, moved back to Minnesota, where I live now, and co-founded Fair State Brewing Cooperative, um, and opened a couple breweries in the course of the next decade, and then started um, transitioned over to the the vendor side as of last year. Great. Okay, let's jump into some questions. The inter the uh, the meat of the episode. So I'm going to start with Eric. In your experience, both as a brewer and with White Labs, are there styles or types of beer that you generally would recommend a brewery tend to avoid, or that they should do as one offs or with special equipment? Yeah, I I mean broadly speaking, I think avoid beer styles that don't sell <laughs> from a, a from a production or manufacturing standpoint i mean i think a lot of times when a brewery transitions or a brewer from a home brewer to pro they tend to want to overcomplicate things whether it's you know decoction mash or some overthought recipe and just understanding that simple is better when it comes to manufacturing um, but really understand what your what your guests and your customers are looking for first, as opposed to, you know, what what we in the industry often call brewer's beer, right? We all like the the smoked Hellas, but we've also all know that it sits on tap all year, and that's generally what the people that work there drink. Gotcha. Um, Nico, from the perspective of recipe development, are there certain styles or types of beer that you feel are risky to make as a flagship? or part of an ongoing brewing program? And is that based on cost or availability of those ingredients? I mean, I think it's sort of the same answer. Riskier things to do would be to pigeonhole yourself uh, into doing something that you were gonna have a, a hard sort of route to market with. Um, you know, and I, I think that you have to kind of ride the line uh, between everything being same, same with every other brewery in the world, uh, but also, coming going really out on a limb especially as a brand new business and suggesting that you're only going to do one thing and that is that is the only thing you do and you're the only person that's going to do this um you know there are many many breweries out there that started uh with one very particular uh style and they have really put themselves in a box and then had to do a very painful transition away from that and towards something that was going to actually keep the doors open um and so being mindful of those sorts of things, I think is smart. Um, and, you know, I think that brewers often do, um, I talk about this a lot, you know, if you don't have a marketing budget and you don't have a sales budget, the only way that you can really uh, try to get yourself out there is by new, new, new. So it's like always new products, new products, new products all the time. Um, and just being a little bit uh, careful um, and a little bit more intentional, I think can yield yield some benefits um yeah but it, it it you know it's a difficult question frankly 
So don't start as a Belgian only brewery is what you're saying. That would be a bad idea. Um, <laughs> I would say again, like if, if you're say for example, like mixed fermentation and, and oak fermentation is really the only thing you're interested in doing. Great. If the numbers work for you to produce a couple hundred barrels a year and make money and potentially have a very broad distribution footprint. Awesome. But um, you know, understanding where the market is and how much you could theoretically move and how much you need to do to actually make it make sense um, is an important consideration and trying to think about where you're going to sort of like make your mark in the, in the product mix world. Are there ingredients either, either yeast or, or hops or, or thinking grain too, that are just so expensive or so um, unreliable in terms of availability that would just be bad to rest any sort of development plan on? Yeah. So, I mean, my mind goes to hops first because I'm, you know, I work for a hops player. Um, yeah. I think that there are, there are uh, both risks and benefits to making it very clear to the consumer what hops are in the beer that you're making. Um, you know, sometimes it's really important for a beer to have an identity that's, that's tied to a particular hop variety. Sometimes you may want to consider thinking about intentionally building a little bit of a blend in there. Um, and then, you know, talking about a feature hop maybe, or just talking about the characteristics that you get out of the beer, because that gives you a little bit more flexibility. If for some reason, a variety, um, if a variety, you know, declines in acreage or it's so popular that you can't get your hands on it, uh, then you have some fudge room, um, to try to work with your suppliers to match flavor profiles. Um, in terms of expense, um, I mean, I think. It's important. <laughs> and I, you know, having started breweries, it took me a long time to to really do a good job of this, but actually do costing on your on your raw materials and try to figure out what your your even just like, you know, basic sort of gross gross margin is gonna be on things. Um, should give you a decent sense there. Uh maybe it doesn't make sense to do like a Rewaka double IPA right out the gate when you're, you know, paying twenty two dollars a pound or whatever it is. Um, there's also some danger in shiny object syndrome, right? Where like a, a new thing comes out and you have to have it and you end up paying, again, hops, you end up paying $35 a pound for something that two years from now, it's either not going to exist or it's going to be $15 a pound. Um, you know, I think from a, a malt perspective, um, you know, it is easier to do swaps on the malt side it can be just as difficult to do a 100% replacement in terms of flavor profiles. But, you know, for whatever reason, the consumer doesn't care quite as much about which malt you're going to be using. And so as a brewer, that's really nice because you can actually, you know, build something um, and then swap things in, out, in and out as you, as you need to. But, you know, the, the adage of keep it simple, stupid is definitely true. And this is definitely a thing that with malt bills is exceptionally true. Less is more. Um, almost always. And then with yeast, I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge is just don't set yourself up to try to manage a, a seller with, you know, three or four or five different yeast strains, um, except in the case of you're just okay with the business model works with you just like one and done um, yeast. But that as a especially as a small brewery, it can be, well, no, caveat, any brewery, it's really difficult to manage a seller that has more than two or three different yeast strains going on all the time. Um, and that that's going to affect build yeast cost in also, right? So if you're, if you're doing a new pitch every single time, account for that. Um, otherwise at the end of the year, you're going to have some numbers that don't make sense. Right. Any yeah. I mean, I think as, as agricultural products, it, it applies a lot more than, than yeast because 
the production process for yeast is very similar no matter the strain. So, you know, if, if any if anything, this applies to all ingredients and you're working with something maybe a little bit more unique and not always in stock with one supplier would be find the comparable strains with multiple suppliers and have an idea of what those average lead times are. But I, I think it's funny to, to harp on COGS so much because I think that's what it comes down to. And I think the the non-sexy part of starting a brewery is not what people want to look at. And I'm sure we saw a lot of that this week. I know I did with breweries and planning. And, you know, my, my one conversation I had that still stuck with me was not wanting to follow best practice because it was hard. And I said, I'm sorry, <laughs> brewing's hard. Like, you know, owning a business is hard. And if you're worried more about what you're going to brew, um, that's great. That's That can be the fun part. Recipe design can be the fun part and tasting that final product. But understanding how that recipe was developed and got there and is it something you can replicate whether it's financial or through availability i was thinking of of one of one of the breweries um, that i've heard about lately that has a flagship that has a specific fruit in it and the cost of that fruit has gone through the ceiling um and so to 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 count a flagship that has something that's that expensive um, or has just magically become that expensive i think is tough same with local ingredients if you're going to hang your hat on that that's going to be a cost yeah, I, w- I would argue from, from my experience that I would say probably half or more breweries that are under two years old and under 2,000 barrels a year probably have not properly costed their beer. I think that's 100% accurate. I think pandemic was kind of a, a wake-up call for a lot of people in this, in this regard, and, and I think people are doing a better job of now doing it now. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly didn't. It was kind of like, well, I mean, you know, we're selling it over the bar. So the margins fine. are great. Margins are great. And they're like, well, just the kegs are whatever. We're not going to worry about it. Mobile canning, you know, whatever. It's cool. We got it. Um, yeah. So pay attention, pay attention to it and be, be careful. You know, I think one thing about, um, we've hung our hat on this one ingredient. And so now it's really difficult. I think that part of this is, this is challenging, but especially as a new business, as a small brewery being, um, able and willing to pivot is crucial. And so if there's something that is just going to like hamstring a brand in terms of affordability, you kind of have to be okay with moving away from it. Um, you know, I, there's one customer that I work with. It's actually, it's a, it's a decent sized brewery, maybe 20,000 barrels plus that um, their philosophy, you know, they're not cutting and running from brands, but they acknowledge when they develop a brand that a brand has uh, you know, a sunrise and a sunset. So they're planning on a, you know, three to five year cycle for most things. Um, and, you know, it's, I think as a small brewery, um, it, it can be hanging on to something after it doesn't make sense anymore is uh, a thing that happens a lot and it's not great. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on to Neil. Uh, so with regard to operational aspects of brewing equipment or space for production, are there some brewing approaches that would need more square footage for special equipment or special building design? Thinking cool ships or beers that would require non-standard processes could also include cellaring. Yeah, you know, there's uh, a lot of considerations there. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, cool ship. That's, you know, kind of an obvious one. If you're going to do something spontaneous, you got to have a space to uh, to do that. And, you know, what I was thinking of is kind of... Uh, uh, even just mixed fermentation uh, stuff, barrel aging, um, you know, there's a consideration there where maybe you have square footage to, you know, to fit uh, some barrels that have mixed culture in it, for example, 
but you know the breweries who are doing that right and who are really uh, conscious of micro issues really you know try and keep those things separate and have a separate space where they can at least have you know have some distance between uh, something that's got uh, wild fermentation and uh, your house yeast strain um, and are very careful about you know getting those things uh, too close together unless there be some type of cross-contamination. Um, you know, another thing I think of is, uh, you know, if you ever plan on getting into, I think of storage considerations a lot because I deal a lot with draft beer and, you know, startup breweries who build two small coolers. Uh, and if, you know, you, you think you might want to do something like uh, bottle conditioning or can conditioning for your beers, uh, which some breweries like to do, you know, that requires a lot of extra temperature controlled space. And uh, I find that a lot of brewers uh, and retailers for that matter uh, have no idea when they're first getting into this, how much refrigeration costs, how much it costs to build a cooler um, and, uh, and how much it costs to add on even to a cooler. Uh, I don't know how many breweries I've, I've worked with who installed a cooler that they grew out of within the first three months. Uh, you know, especially during COVID that happened a lot because a lot of brewers started canning that didn't anticipate canning. So they needed storage space for, uh, for all those cans. Uh, and, you know, so they weren't planning on backstock and, and all of that. So temperature controlled space is, uh, is a big consideration there. So those are the things that really first and foremost come to my mind. Got it. Okay. Nico, back to you. When a brewer is developing recipes for year-round beers, how should they evaluate or prepare for variations between crops or the possibility that there might not be enough of a hop variety to be year-round? And I think you're just as a little bit. Yeah, I mean, hop varieties, I think, are are um, especially crucial in this. Uh, like I said, they're, you know, it's not wise to pin your hat on, on a malt that's, that's uh, experimental or a very small malter or whatever and make a big deal out of it, but um, there probably is a little bit more fungibility. Um, in terms of hops, you know, I think a, a big thing is to, and I, it's, it's easy for me to say this, or it's obvious, but have a good relationship with your, with your hop supplier. Um, and, you know, and I will say this as a hop supplier, like it's not a bad idea, never a bad idea to work with multiple hop suppliers and have a good relationship with all of them, have frank conversations with them about what supply looks like, about what the harvest is going to look like, um, about where varieties are coming and they're going. Um, if you're looking to use an experimental variety, you know, that can be a safe bet provided you have an honest conversation about what the likelihood of it's continuing on and, and being commercialized is. Um, and then as far as managing, uh, year to year variations in crop with hops, you know, again, I think it's, uh, carefully auditioning your suppliers, making sure that they're, they are using best practices um you know actually paying attention to coas uh doing analysis on on raw materials for yourself um but also again leaning on your supplier to get good sensory information about what it is that you're going to use you know if you're working with a hot vendor and they can't tell you anything about the lot that you're going to get um i would consider maybe looking for a new supplier uh you know we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years um at ych developing uh sensory tools that in our that are very powerful for me but that uh our hope is that will actually become customer facing so i think you know just becoming familiar with your raw ingredients understanding 
um, a little bit more about what the uh, what the agricultural side of it looks like and not having it just not thinking of it um, as, you know, a finished product that you just buy off the shelf and it is the same every time will actually help you embracing the fact that there is variation will actually help you work around variation because you can understand where it's coming from and how to how to mitigate it. You know, beer is an agricultural product, but we don't tend to think of it that way. So um, I would say that most hop suppliers would be excited to hear from uh, new breweries that want to know more about the business and become savvy and understand what it is they're getting and who they're getting it from. And uh, growers are the same way. Um, growers are, I've been constantly impressed and surprised with how interested growers are in America, especially um, in hearing from brewers and understanding what brewers want um, and actually getting feedback for brewers. So don't be, um, don't be afraid to, to reach out to whoever and just throw questions out there. What do you think about the secondary market? Is it good to count on that? Um, not a huge fan of the secondary market. I think buying from people that you know, um, there's always a sort of like informal economy, I think, in local beer markets where it's like, oh, hey, you know, I'm two boxes short, but they're showing up next week. Can you spot me? Like that sort of stuff, I think, it, working with people that you know, um, very low risk. Um, there is some risk inherent in in working with the secondary market in other ways. I mean, price is super volatile. Um, the biggest thing I think, uh, is that you can't assess what the storage conditions were, um, before you got it. Uh, and that's, that's crucial. There actually was a presentation in one of the sessions here at CBC this year, um, uh, talking about the importance of HSI and this kind of a, you know, technical thing, but essentially, you know, keeping track of, of how the the hops were handled before they were pelleted, and then also having being able to have a good chain of custody on between when they were pelleted and you actually receiving them, because you know they they do they do spoil, right? You're going to lose a lot of the positive characteristics you're looking for if something's been sitting out um, at 90 degrees in somebody's brewery for three months, and that does happen. And those are often the hops that end up on secondary exchanges. Yeah. So we'll take a short break here for our sponsor message. White Labs proudly presents our newest innovation in yeast pitching solutions. Pure Pitch Next Generation it was developed for brewers like you, ensuring a foolproof fermentation every batch. Super easy to use. Just open the caps and pitch or add in line with the Flex series of products. The optimized cell count allows brewers worldwide to achieve consistent, clean, and speedy fermentations. Visit whitelabs.com for more information and to find the perfect strain for your next beer. Okay, let's go back to Eric. Are there yeast strains that are more high maintenance than others or that generally tend to last successfully for fewer batches? Should they be avoided as a house yeast or for year-round beers? For the most part, yeasts that are in a year round catalog and for yeast suppliers have been vetted for performance. So they're, they're highly domesticated strains that are very stable. They're generally very easy to use. With that said, there are handling differences between a lot of strains. There is a reason that California ale yeasts and strains like that are as popular as they are and have been around for so long because yes, they make great beers, but they're very easy to use. They're very easy to store. They're very easy to reuse. Um, so, you know, finding a, a house strain that is able to A, make a wide variety of beers and, and B, be pretty hardy so that it's able to survive some stressful conditions or if you have to store it for a couple days longer than ideal um, is pretty important. 
Awesome. Neil, so in thinking about serving a variety of different kinds of beer in a tap room, are there some that are perennially a pain for some reasons, like carbonation levels, service, staining draft lines, et cetera? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, there are some styles of beer that part of their whole flavor profile, a very important part of the flavor profile is high carbonation. And high carbonation can cause some real problems if you're trying to pour it on draft. Um, you know, uh, the the upper limit typically for draft beers, if you want it to pour uh, easily on a draft system is about 2.8 volumes per volume or, you know, about five, six grams per liter. Um, if you get above that, uh, you you need to start doing some special things and, and, you know, taking some extra steps with draft system design to be able to handle a beer like that. And there are a lot of styles that people like to make that are highly carbonated like that. A lot of Belgian styles, you know, Belgian triples, Belgian golden strong, uh, you know, quads, uh, a lot of those super effervescent beers are just super problematic and, you know, you don't see a whole lot of them uh, on draft. So, you know, uh, I see that a lot with uh, packaging breweries who uh, have a really popular, highly carbonated beer that they send out in the market, like a German Hefeweizen, for example. And, you know, it might sell really good in package, but they just have real problems on draft because they're carbonating it the same to the same level. Uh, it's very effervescent in the can and same on draft. And it's and it's a problematic pour. Um, so, you know, you have to think about whether the profile of that beer is going to still be something that you like and something that you want to serve if it's served at a lower CO2 content. Um, and, you know, you mentioned flavor staining and that's, that's always a concern if you're doing fruit beers, you know, uh, fruit beers are, are very popular, uh, and there's a high likelihood that you can flavor stain a line. Um, and with certain draft systems, it might not be a big deal. Uh, you might have a, a short run through a cooler wall and, you know, if you flavor stain a line, you know, big deal, you spend three bucks and, and put a new draft line in. Uh, so no big deal. Uh, but if you're running a remote system with, you know, uh, you know, a beer line bundle, uh, glycol chilled beer line bundle is really expensive. And if you ruin a line, you can't just replace one line. Uh, so you have to think about the types of things you're putting on, um, you know, and this can go with, uh, you know, you see a lot with, uh, and this isn't really beer, but you see it in breweries a lot is root beer. Root beer is like the demon for staining draft lines. Uh, you put root beer in a line and you'll never pour anything but root beer in that line. Everything that pours through after it will taste like root beer. has this incredible knack for absorbing into, uh, into tubing and flavor staining. Uh, so yeah, that's a big concern too. Uh, you know, it's, it's mainly those draft beers that, uh, uh, that, you know, have, have some of those qualities that make it difficult, uh, for your system. You always need to pour sours after sours and dark beers after dark beers to avoid some issues there. Uh, no, you should be cleaning your lines in between, uh, those beers anyway. So if you, uh, if you have flavor carryover after cleaning the line, uh, then that's an issue with that previous beer. Um, and you're not going to see that, you know, with just a, you know, a typical sour beer, unless it's heavily fruited, you're not going to see that with, with a stout or a porter, uh, that, you know, the, uh, 
the types of things that you're going to get in that line uh, will come right out with a, you know, with a good line cleaning if you're cleaning it the right way. Um, you know, there's no real risk of flavor carryover with, uh, you know, some of the standard flavored beers that we, you know, we see all over the place. Uh, now, if you just tap a beer right after it without cleaning the line, yeah, you're going to have some flavor carryover there. So are there big complications with longer runs that people should be thinking about when they're designing their draft system and production system with equipment? Um, yeah, you know, especially if you are, uh, especially if you're pouring from serving vessels, a lot of uh, small brewers want to uh, pour from serving vessels and they want to pour it uh, a long distance. Um, so, you know, there's special considerations with uh, serving tanks because most of them are not uh pressure rated. So, you know, the, the upper limit for pressure rating on your average serving vessel in a small brewery is about 15 PSI. Uh, so that precludes the use of uh, blended gas on a long draw draft system if you're going to do that. Uh, so you have to use pneumatic beer pumps and, and things can get a little more complicated, uh, especially if you're, you know, and this is another added complication you get just in general, and this is kind of getting away from uh, you know, a, a little bit away from the question, but if you have serving vessels that are outside the cooler, uh, that becomes even more difficult to deal with from a draft dispense standpoint. Uh, if you want to, if you have, uh, you know, a jacketed serving vessel where the, you have cold beer in it, but it's in a warm room, uh, you, and you want to pour it over a long distance, you need pneumatic beer pumps to pour it, but that pump has to be refrigerated as well. So oftentimes what you end up doing is doing a remote, a short remote into a nearby walk-in cooler, which is housing the, uh, housing the beer pumps and, and the fobs that have to go with that. And then you're going back out of the cooler and doing the length of that run. So it, it can get pretty complicated uh, in, in those instances. So, you know, those are some special considerations for sure with long draft systems. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Nico, should brewers be considering different ways to include hops in their recipe, such as fresh versus pelletized extracts, oils, et cetera, for efficiency costs, improved flavor, shelf stability, or other reasons? I mean, I think it completely depends on the kind of beer you're making and also the equipment you have. <clears throat> and, you know, if you're really starting from the ground up, you can be thinking, hopefully you can be thinking clearly about all of the equipment considerations um, say you want to make a lot of IPAs, uh, you know, either consider whirlpool design, right. If you've got a lot of hop load on the hot side or just from the, from the jump, start thinking about different, uh, extract products you might use to increase yield on the hot side. You know, I think that it also stands on the, on the cold side as well. Um, consider, uh, you know, as a person who's open breweries, I've made this mistake too. just accept the tank drawing that they give you. Um, and and make no make no alterations for process uh, related to dry hopping the absolute crap out of hazy IPAs. Um, you know it's really annoying to have inch and a half pipe uh, on the bottom of a fermenter, for example. So you know spend a couple extra bucks, size that up a little bit. Um, you will you will hate yourself less when you're doing cone dumps later. Um, ditto you know dry hopping ports on on tanks. Um, you know. Uh, Extract is, is an interesting question. Uh, you know, you definitely, there are yield gains associated with it. There are, um, 
there's a whole lot of actually sustainable sustainability goals uh, that you can achieve. You know, those things are actually not normally as flashy as they they might seem. Um, but you know, just the the idea of like trading from a T90 pellet down either to cryo pellet or all the way to extract. Uh, you're shipping either you know half as much or a tenth as much or less. Um, and in the case of extract, also you're not having to store it cold. So there are some there's some potential savings and also um, boons there. Uh, but I, again, I would just like consider exactly what you want to do um, and then try to work closely with the hop supplier to answer those questions about how you might best achieve that. Um, I would say if you're designing recipes and you're opening a brewery and you are looking at making a lot of hazy IPAs, think carefully about what dry hop load looks like. Uh, you know, I think this has a lot to do with yeast management as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of breweries out there that say like, well, we just have to dry hop early. Otherwise we're not going to get it the way that we want it to be. Um, I would argue there are probably ways you can work around that uh, and save a whole lot of money and, and actually just get better at seller practice by um, repitching yeast. You know, that, that, that is going to yield so many benefits if you, um, that's a black box that, that many small breweries just don't want to open. And, uh, I would suggest that you do and, and become comfortable with that. Cause it's an important part of, of brewing process. Um, but, you know, think about recipe design, trial things out, see if you can, uh, put some in here or there, move things around. Maybe you want to use like a flowable extract in the whirlpool. Maybe there are, you know, oil products you want to add to the fermenter. There's all sorts of different things you could do. Um, but, you know, be, be intentional um and try to consider uh yield um as best you can uh typically you know i think these days uh with ipa production most of the the methodology we're seeing to try to claw some of that yield back from dry hop loss are uh, products like cryo hops which are essentially concentrated pellets where we're discarding some of the bract fraction essentially in concentrating lupulin glands um, which are you know the money part of the hop um, and, uh, again, you know, different products at different specs, but we see people starting to achieve, you can get, you know, up to a 5% yield gain reliably by implementing cryo on the cold side on IPA. And if you do the math on that, uh, clawing back that 5%, it's all, it's all about cogs, right? But, um, clawing back that 5% and adding it to your margin is going to add up quickly, even if you have small tanks. What do you say when pound for pound on paper t90s compared to cryo is so different i mean we recommend basically like a 50 percent replacement rate so if you've got a pound of t90 in a recipe somewhere start with replacing it by half a pound um of cryo you know i think that that rule basically extends to all of those kind of concentrated uh pellet products across the market um when you get into extracts uh, very, very important to work closely with a supplier that you have decided to work with and figure out what replacement rate looks like, because a little goes a long way. And if you miss it, uh, you could end up with like a, you know, uh, 300 IBU thing that you don't want. Eric, is there a similar kind of, um, analysis evaluation about, um, liquid versus dry versus powdered versus whatever in the yeast world? Sorry, what's the question? Oh, just just the the difference in using the different types of product. Sure, yeah, there's definitely different considerations and pros and cons for each, right? Um, dry yeast goes through a dehydration process. It's generally grown on molasses, so 
you have the ability to to work with gluten-free grown yeast which is becoming more and more relevant for a lot of um you know gluten-free or um health quote-unquote conscious uh, beverage producers but there um are a lot of differences when it comes to i wouldn't say so much when using but considerations on how it's going to impact your beer uh liquid versus dry um in the way that maybe you store it in the way that you prepare it um when you do dehydrate a strain not all strains go through that process uh, equally so you're much more limited in the variety of strains that you're actually able to select from which which is what i think is a very large consideration when when selecting your ingredient when we're talking about cogs i think a lot of breweries that are starting or you kind of see it more jaded breweries that haven't priced out their beer great to begin with and have to change their ingredients or process based off of their financials and that is the last position you want to be in is having to change a recipe or compromise your process in, in your ideal ingredient because you think it's cheaper because you don't know how to reuse yeast and you want to pitch a fresh brick of dry each time as opposed to knowing how to properly handle uh, yeast and maybe spending a little bit more on the strain that you want in a liquid version and, and knowing how to reduce costs by using it over and over again. Are there flavor differentials as well? There are. So when you're dehydrating those strains, um, you know, some of those metabolic pathways that express the complexity do change. And you could argue whether that's for better or worse. Um, White Labs offers both. We offer dry yeast and liquid yeast, and then we offer it in the same strain. And I've personally done a lot of blind sensory tests, and I've been able to pick out the liquid yeast each time. And it's my preference of what I'd you know, qualify as, as a higher quality beer due to the cleanness and complexity. But um, dry yeast now, fortunately, has a lot of really high quality yeast strains as opposed to 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so you can make some great beers with yeast produced different ways. It's just a matter of, is it fit your process? Do you actually know how to handle it? And are you using an ingredient or process as a crutch? Uh, because like I said, brewing is hard. Gotcha. Nico, are there flavor differentials between the different kinds of? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. So um, you can think there's whole cone T90 pellet, which is the the most common, and then concentrated pellets, whether that be cryo or, you know, CGX, Lupomax, whatever it is, and then um, advanced products, extracts. So, um, you know, as as you, the hop, like I said, the cone, I'm already into it, but um, is you can basically divide it up into like the bract and lupulin glands. Bract you can think of as plant matter. The lupulin glands are contain al- almost all of the oils um, and acids that we're after. And so as you remove um, the bract fraction, so from whole cone to T90, and then from T90 to a, like a cryo pellet, you're going to lose some of the kind of um, full spectrum of certain things. Like maybe it'll get a little bit less grassy. We tend to see uh, the cryo lots will pop a little bit harder on um, even like, you know, adjusted for uh, intensity um, on some of the, you know, citrus or tropical or whatever it might be. Um, That said, you know, we don't typically recommend that people use 100% uh, cryo pellets even. Um, There are some there are a lot of different considerations why you might not want to do that. If you're making hazy IPA, uh, the polyphenol content in hops is an important component in haze stability. 
um, the polyphenol content between um, compared between T90 and cryo pellets is actually quite similar, but if you're using half as much, half as many pounds in T90, your, your polyphenol contribution to the wort stream or the, you know, in the beer, in the fermenter is going to be drastically reduced. And you may notice some clearing issues that you didn't want. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and then also there's just sort of like a, you know, some sort of je ne sais quoi in, intangibles that you get out of a T90 pellet that you may not get out of a cryo. I've actually had good luck producing hundred percent cryo beers. Um, but by and large, we see people sit in the people that are like heavy cryo use adopters sit in the 50 to 75% um, cryo usage. And that's like on a, that's a T90 equivalent rate. Um, so, you know, that's the best way to think about recipe development is like, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm four pounds per barrel T90 equivalent, right? Uh, because cryo is expensive. So you don't want to do four pounds per barrel of cryo. That's eight pounds per barrel T90 equivalent. Better way to think about it. Um, with extracts, there are tons of, of flavor considerations. Um, for using extract for bittering, you know, likely you're just going to get a nice clean bitterness out of it. It shouldn't be a huge issue provided that the process considerations have been dealt with. Uh, Supercritical CO2 extract is very resinous. Um, and you do have to be careful to actually dose it correctly. Uh, a lot of the, um, what we call, you know, either Whirlpool or cold side aroma oil products that are out there, typically, um, your, you know, replacement rate would be 50% or less in the dry hop. Um, extract is difficult. Uh, aroma extract is very difficult. So it's come a long way in the last few years, but, um, it can be difficult to, uh, reproduce, you know, a hundred percent of the, the top notes that make a, that make a varietal varietal. Uh, and you, you may flatten it out a little bit by using too much extract. So, you know, I would say, uh, tread lightly with those. Um, but there are a ton of fun new products to, to play around with on the cold side for sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to move this along a little bit, uh, Neil. What suggestions do you have in terms of offering nitro beers, casks, Birkins, and other non-traditional service approaches as part of a beer program? Uh, well, you know, to start with nitro, uh, there's quite a bit of consideration there. If you want to do any type of volume out of your tap room, um, or, you know, if you want to uh, package it is a whole other level, but, uh, you know, for a small brewer, even just serving it out of your tap room, uh, you have to produce it first. Uh, there's a misunderstanding. I think, you know, I, I'm often surprised at how many people really misunderstand what a nitro beer is. Uh, the nitro beer is not produced by the gas that dispenses it. Nitro beer is produced by infusing nitrogen into the beer. Uh, and then it is dispensed by a special gas. Um, and infusing nitrogen in beer takes place at a uh, higher pressure than most tanks are rated. Uh, so you need at least like 38 PSI to get nitrogen to start absorbing in the solution. And, uh, you know, most serving vessels aren't rated for that. And you have to have ASME rated tanks to be able to, uh, to produce that. Um, so what a lot of brewers are, are left with is uh, nitrogenating keg per keg. So you fill a keg of essentially flat beer, and then you infuse nitrogen in it. And it can be a very time consuming process to do that. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of brewers, you know, in the planning stages aren't considering this They're you know, they want that as part of their portfolio, but they aren't considering, uh, the investment that they need to make up front to either get an ASME rated tank. Uh, there's also some, uh, nitrogen infusion, uh, devices out there where you can, uh, you know, nitrogenate beer at the point of dispense. So you can essentially have a still beer and, as, as you're serving it, it goes through uh, a diffusion device that uh, essentially nitrogenates the beer uh, one pint at a time as you're serving it. Those you can, so that's a workaround, but those can be very expensive. You can uh, spend several thousand dollars on those units. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's some expense involved in producing that even from uh, even in a kegs and, you know, and if you're doing it keg by keg, you know, you might not have to have the special equipment, but now you're talking labor costs. You know, how long is it going to take you to uh, nitrogenate each individual keg that you want to serve? Uh, and so then, you know, if you're packaging and distributing, that's a whole other thing because, uh, you know, you have to have the tanks to be able to package from uh, your, you know, there's the consideration of, of how you get the consumer to serve that in a way that knocks the nitrogen out because that's all part of the whole dispense of those beers. Anyway, the presentation of a nitro beer is that rush of bubbles when you pour it into a glass, but it needs to be agitated significantly to do that. And that's what that nitro faucet does at, uh, on draft. And that's what, uh, when you buy a can of Guinness, for example, that has that little ball inside or the bottle has the little floaty widget that agitates the beer when you pop the top. And it breaks the nitrogen out of beer. So I've seen some brewers just have instructions on there to, I think uh, it might've been four hands that said pour hard uh, or might've been, or maybe it was, there's a few of them that have done that where they encourage you to just, you know, agitate it as much as possible. You know, and so these are all considerations that you have to, uh, that you have to take under advisement when you're, when you're considering a nitro beer. Uh, now, Cascale is a whole other deal, too. You mentioned Cascale. Um, you know, first of all, if you're going to get into Cascale, you need to uh, think a little bit about the investment that's required to, for Cascale versus uh, how much of a market there is for that. There's uh, I mean, honestly, there's not a lot of people who even know what Cascale is. Uh, I would argue that most brewers don't even really fully understand what cask condition ale is. Um, you know, it's beer that it, that is, uh, undergoes secondary fermentation in the vessel from which it's dispensed. Uh, it's not just a warmer, flatter version of the beer you normally love. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in order to do that, it requires a certain level of expertise to, to, uh, fully condition that and have it drop bright and to be able to, uh, you know, dispense that properly. It takes special equipment uh with you know a firkin and stillage and and all of the fittings that go in that firkin and uh you know so there's a lot that goes into that and if uh if you do it right it can be a really cool presentation uh and you can you know and you can really wow some people with it you know uh and it can be a really wonderful thing i mean cascale is kind of like the freshly baked bread of beer uh, but, you know, there's a lot of considerations from an equipment standpoint, an expertise standpoint, and to get to my previous point, a storage standpoint, because it needs to be conditioned at cellar temperature, which is in, you know, the low 50s. 
So, uh, you know, not a lot of brewers have a temperature controlled space in which they can, you know, keep a cask like that. So uh, there's a lot of considerations there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that to address those two things, uh, you know, that's uh, some non-traditional stuff that uh, is going to require a little extra special attention. I think to that point, I think it was, it really kind of summed up a lot of things is there's like the best practice and traditional way of doing things. And then there's the craft brewer way of doing a lot of it too. And we've seen so many unique workarounds for almost everything, even like casks is what I was thinking of is, yeah. Uh, you know, we run a cask program. We had, we had one of our brewers uh, for white loves brewing co who was interested in starting it. And it was a good project for this brewer to see if they could manage a project by themselves and, they have and every week they make a new cask and and he, he is doing a very traditional way and you know naturally carbonating and conditioning in the cask and then you know trying to uh, rack on a, a fairly green beard keeping it for a few weeks and managing it but um, there are breweries that partially carbonate a beer in their bright and, and fill a couple casks that way as well and uh, i think no matter what you do you have to have intention for your process this would be the point I would try to emphasize on that. Yeah, Americans do have a tendency to kind of take traditional methods and kind of make it their own and put their own twist on it. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the cask, quote unquote, cask ale you see in the U.S. is, uh, you know, brewers doing like what you said, they fill, you know, a, a low carbonated version of their beer uh, off a of bright tank. And they send it out and sometimes that's the only way you can get something cask out to retail because you know you have to get it through distribution and the storage and handling makes real cask ale extremely difficult uh for distribution here in the u.s um you know and so you know oftentimes it's an opportunity for brewers to put different things in a cask so here's our you know this beer that you know of one of our flagship beers with, you know, some type of fruit in it or, you know, kind of a one-off keg that's, you know, got some unusual ingredient uh, dropped into the firkin to add some type of flavor. Um, you know, when you say the uh, that Americans using uh, traditional things to uh, and putting their own twist on it, one of the things that always comes to mind is uh, lucre faucets, the side pull faucet that you're starting to see it a lot of uh, a lot of tap rooms now. Very traditional faucet in the Czech Republic, um, and you know, built for speed and creation of a very drinkable wet foam. Uh, you know, there's a couple different very traditional pours that are are used in the Czech Republic. And what Americans typically do is they uh, they do something totally different with it. They uh, they pour it with a lot of agitation in, you know, three or four stages and, and break out a lot of foam along the way and put big foam meringue head on top, uh, and, you know, and call it a slow pour. And so, you know, uh, I think of like, and, and this is, isn't a knock, it's just a different way of, of taking a traditional thing and kind of putting an American twist on it. You know, I think of like Bierstadt in Denver, that's what they've done. And they kill it with a really amazing beer, their slow pour pills. Uh, and, you know, it's caught on with a lot of people. And then so, it, and it's also been fun at the same time to see brewers who, uh, 
got slow pour or what they call slow pour faucets, the side pull faucets, starting with slow pours, then learning about the traditional check pours, uh, you know, and then when they get their, their check pills on tap or whatever, they're using, uh, you know, dimpled mugs and pouring the traditional way of doing it and kind of coming around to the tradition as well. So that's, that's one of those fun topics that, that you know, when you said that, Eric, made me think of that. Well, unfortunately, we need to start wrapping it up for today. But before we go, uh, what would each of you uh, tell a brewing planning or a startup as your, your best tip or best piece of advice? Eric, I want to make you go first. <laughs> Not specifically ingredient related, but if it's brewing that you love and why you're starting a brewery, do you need to understand the business side? There's so much more to operating a brewery than just brewing and sharing a great beer. Um, that's the benefit of owning that type of business, but understand how to manage ingredients. And as we said, cogs and understand the impact that has understand that you're flagship most profitable beer might be something you don't like and create something that your guests enjoy and makes people happy and however you want to do that and define that i think that's that's most important but uh it's yeah okay neil yeah um you know I, I think, uh, you know, be uh, very intentional about what you do with your tap room. I think in today's beer environment, um, that is going to be your your main driver of income as a small brewer. Um, it's really hard to make a go of it with distribution right now. Not to say that it's impossible, but, uh, you know, and sorry about the background noise that people are banging things around. Um, <laughs> um but uh, be very intentional about about your tap room and and realize that that's going to be uh, the driver of things. Set up your draft system for cleanability, ease of use, uh, and maximizing uh, maximizing yield. And find an expert to uh, to work with who who knows how to set up a system that's going to give you a great pour every time. Awesome, Mika. And I would say from a you know from a raw materials standpoint. Um, you know, uh, I would I would just try to leverage everything you possibly can. You are not on an island. Uh, chances are, and don't take this the wrong way, you don't have that many original ideas. Things that you're thinking about doing um, may be unique, and they're going to be unique to you, and they and that's fantastic. But go find people that are doing the thing that you're thinking about doing, or that you think might not be. Just do your research. This is one of the best parts. You know, this is one of the fun parts about the brewing industry is trying to figure out what you're going to make and how you're going to make it. Brewers love to talk about process. Go talk to everybody you possibly can about how do, how they're doing things. Learn from that and 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 set aside ego um, and really listen to what people have come to as best practice. And I think that extends to the supplier side as well. Um, I think that brewers, some do and some don't, but by and large, I think small brewers are not leaning um, as hard on their uh, raw ingredient suppliers as they could for um, advice. Uh, we, you know, my job, I'm in breweries all the time, all over the place, seeing how everybody's doing stuff. People are very typically very open um, with sharing and can at the very least be a good conduit, but also 
just help you try to think through the ins and outs of how to get to the end product that you want. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. I think I think one of my big takeaways from this is that you need to to learn and continue to communicate. And I think all of the suppliers and all of the brewers are happy to talk about brewing. To your point, Nico, um, just you have to ask and and be willing to to consider some of the answers that you hear. It's in the distribution side that everything gets nasty and yeah. competitive. Yeah. Right. This is the fun part. Yeah. 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 And understanding that it's the fun part. Um, so a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 11, What Are You Brewing? of the Started Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 12, continuing forward with your business plan, this time delving into the question of equipment and infrastructure. This will be released a bare minute after midnight on Tuesday, June 6th. We have a final wrap-up word from our sponsor. White Labs proudly presents our newest innovation in yeast pitching solutions. Pure Pitch Next Generation was developed for brewers like you, ensuring a foolproof fermentation every batch. Super easy to use, just open the caps and pitch, or add in line with the Flex series of products. The optimized cell count allows brewers worldwide to achieve consistent, clean, and speedy fermentations. Visit whitelabs.com for more information and to find the perfect strain for your next beer. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Started Brewery website at startedbrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources and at the offerings from our savvy contributors and our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with new Started Brewery contributors, content, events, and more great information on the contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com. Perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candace Moon, wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery. <laughs>